Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Emerging evidence shows that drug overdose deaths are surging from increased substance abuse, driven by feelings of isolation, anxiety, and depression during the coronavirus pandemic. Fatal drug overdoses were already ticking upward in 2019, according to preliminary data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, a trend that the pandemic is accelerating and more challenging. Many treatment programs have been scaled back as the federal government put some funding for non-COVID-related work on hold indefinitely. And here with me to shed some light on this growing issue is Dr. Nora Volkoff. She's director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And welcome, Dr. Volkoff. Uh, Good afternoon, and thanks very much for having me here. Yes, glad to have you. Last time we were together was at City Arts and Lectures on stage in San Francisco, uh, which I remember well. I also want to welcome Joanne Spetz, Associate Director for Research at UCSF Health Force Center, which provides supports and recommendations to the Health and Human Services Department. And good to have you with us, Joanne Spetz. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And let me begin, Nora Volkoff, with you. And let me begin by just talking about really what I mentioned in the introduction and how you see it, uh, the more overdose deaths now are being attributed to the increased subst- uh, deaths to substance abuse are being attributed due to anxiety and uh, social isolation and depression. In other words, as I said, it's a kind of epidemic within the pandemic exacerbated by people being cut off and losing jobs and all the rest of that. Uh, and that seems to be evident, but how bad is it at this point? Well, we don't have precise numbers about how bad it is because right now it's so very difficult to collect information from the usual sources that we have relied in the past, including the fact that many of our programs on research have had to be closed because of the urgency to take care of patients with COVID. So we are using information through virtual tools and uh, the networks that we've generated and formed as part of our research enterprise to get uh, data from people in the fields to give give us a sense of what's going on. And from this data, what we have seen basically consistently for almost all the United States, an increase in the number of people that are overdosing. We do not know how that translates into fatalities because it's right now, it's very difficult to get your hands on those numbers, including the fact that in many places are not doing autopsies to determine the cause of death. There's also the whole issue, as you mentioned uh, in your introduction, that has been very devastating for all of us, but even more so for people that are suffering from, from addiction of social isolation, of loss of jobs, of the uncertainty and stressors. And, and that in turn has uh, resulted already in an increase in the need for antidepressants, anxiety, and uh, we are hearing a relapse of people that have achieved recovery. 
So this has been extremely disturbing uh, to the community of individuals that are stri striving to find a hold in their lives to build their their, 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 their opportunities for getting jobs, uh, which are now uh, even further curtailed. So there are many factors that have collided to make it so very difficult, including what you say, uh, the, the undermining of the social and community support systems that, that were helping individuals either get treatment or the social support that's necessary to integrate and to feel part of the community. All of those have been decimated and, and, and at the same time, we are seeing, uh, fortunately, on the, the positive aspect, because I think that it's important to shine where we are seeing advances, um, um, an expansion on, of our ability to try to buffer some of these uh, difficulties by the use of visual, virtual technologies and by changes on the way that we are prescribing medications that can help people with opioid use disorders applications that can provide also support for some of the symptoms for that may be emerging like depression and a big concern that we've had all along is the rise in suicidality uh, which is actually higher for people that are addicted to that are addicted in general but so, certainly those that are addicted to opioids um, we've also seen across the whole country uh, basically release of people that were in jails or prisons uh, into the community because of the fear of contagions in those circumstances, which of course, in the one hand, has a very positive element to it because the criminalization of addiction is not in any way conducive to any new outcomes. But the problem is that we're releasing them into a community without a support system that's necessary to help them be successful. So this is extending into into pretty much, you know, what you say goes back to the fact that uh, I remember you were quoted in the Washington Post as saying we need to multitask as a society. Uh, but I was also struck by what you said initially that we really, really need better data. We were getting the data from medical teams and hospitals and police. And the reality is that uh, we just don't know, although I've seen figures that suggest that it's continuing to go up. It was like I saw figures that suggested 18 percent in March and 29 percent in April up and 42 percent in May. And the fact of the matter is these aren't just these uh, uh, blue collar deaths of despair that uh, were written about by Ann Case and uh, uh, Angus Denton, uh, you know, who won a Nobel Prize. The, the, this, this is really spreading and surging in ways that are affecting just about everybody. That's absolutely correct. And one of the areas that is really heart-wrenching is that we're seeing a significant rises, particularly, for example, among the African-American population, which also has extraordinary, much higher uh, rates of uh, deaths from COVID than, than other groups. And so you have these two things colliding with one another. And you sort of said, I mean, there, there is, I think it has made us so, so very aware that we can no longer neglect these, these terrible health disparities that we're observing. So it has been very tragic, the opioid crisis by itself, that COVID has been devastating. But overall that, even worse, it has affected the un underprivileged groups and very notably African-Americans. So amidst all of these, we have that element that makes it even so much urgent to try to very rapidly, because we don't have luxuries of time here, we have to act to prevent this, this suffering and deaths, both from COVID, but also from the opioid epidemic that is plaguing our country.
And again, Nora Volkoff is director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Joanne Spetz is director of the UCSF Health Work, Health Workforce Research Center and associate director of research at uh, UCSF Health Force Center. Uh, let me go to you, Joanne Spetz, on just getting a picture of what we really are uh, dealing with with this huge upsurge, uh, particularly in terms of what's available. Um, I mean, the, the funding is also drying up in many respects, and certainly the Trump administration has not been what anybody could characterize as responsive. They've done little to address the addiction services needs, and the result is uh, there are a lot of people out there who are not only isolated uh, and in need of help, but a lot of people who don't know where to go for help and can't even find help. Yeah, I think there's um, there is a challenge of the the social isolation and the shutdown of all kinds of services or the encouragement for people to stay home has made it very hard for people to access treatment and support when they do realize that they want help and that they need it, um, or even to have the regular contact points where somebody, um, you know, a primary care provider or um, somebody that they encounter in a, you know, some kind of human service agency might say, hey, can I help you with something? Can I help you with this? Those touch points are really important. Um, you know, oh, go yeah, ahead. Well, I was going to ask you, though, I mean, how available, for example, are drugs that can counter the drug addictions uh, that people have? Uh, or how available is telemedicine, those kinds of things which are so needed now? Right, right. We already knew that we had a shortfall of providers to offer medication treatments for opioids and in general, the other kinds of um, therapists, social workers and so on to provide therapy for all kinds of addiction. Um, medication treatment in the U.S. is um, the most common is buprenorphine, which has a really great track record, a lot of evidence behind it. And with a waiver, a uh, provider can prescribe it in an outpatient setting, which is great for patients because there's a lot of privacy. It may be that their primary care provider is also able to prescribe for them and refer them for other therapies or support to, to help them address their, their um, dependence and their opioid use disorder. Um, we haven't had enough of those providers, especially in rural areas. We see the data in California that a lot of the counties that have some of the highest overdose rates don't have nearly the number of providers possible. Um, there have been a few changes um, and waivers instituted um, in the midst of this crisis that have been helpful. I think the most important has been around telemedicine and the authorization of providers to begin buprenorphine treatment on a telehealth visit. And that, um, that has been, of the providers I've talked with, they feel like that has been huge, that um, it has reduced the barrier to accessing care. It has enabled them to provide services to people for whom it is unsafe to come in or it's difficult to come in physically for services. And there's um, a growing number of clinicians that are actually advocating that that become a permanent policy. I believe that legislation was introduced in Congress to move that, that idea forward. It has been introduced and that's a positive side of things. But in the meantime, the treatment centers and the drug courts and the recovery programs are being forced to close or scale back. And, uh, you know, as the subsurge continues, the funds simply aren't there. Yeah, the funding is a problem. And, um, you know, the reality is a lot of the more informal support networks that people engaged in don't exist, as well as formal ones. You know, for people who attended various group meetings as part of their therapy and a part of their support for themselves, 
you know, those meetings aren't happening. It's not viewed as safe. And so, um, and Zoom doesn't really quite cut it. Plus, I think many people just don't have access to the kinds of technology platforms that a lot of other people take for granted. You know, we, we might say, oh, you could just do your, you know, Al-Anon meeting on Zoom, but that's a lot easier said than done. It's just not the same as being in the room with other people and having those other casual touch points where you might run into a friend of yours or a colleague of yours from one of your support groups at the coffee shop and have a chance to check in more informally. So we're missing all of that. And then of course the access to formal treatment programs is, um, is just become much more challenging for people. And again, we haven't had enough providers. Um, I just downloaded the data and have not had a chance to look at it yet. But my suspicion is also the growth of the provider workforce has probably diminished a lot over the past six months. Since the various opioid bills have been passed over 2016 and 2018, there have been opportunities for nurse practitioners, physician assistants, midwives, and other advanced practice clinicians to also join the treatment workforce. And they face a lot of barriers, but it's been really impressive how much that has grown. At this point, there is a greater percentage of advanced practice clinicians with approval to offer buprenorphine treatment than there is a percentage of physicians. So the advanced practice clinicians in just like two or three years have already grown in terms of a share of their workforce offering services much more rapidly than physicians did over almost 20 years. If you've just um, joined us, we're talking about the opioid crisis and the right. upsurge in uh, overdoses from uh, substance abuse. If you'd like to join us, if you have questions about the opioid crisis and how it's being handled during the pandemic, or you simply want to weigh in here and let us know perhaps about concerns you have, personal or otherwise, we do want to hear from you. You can give us a call and join the program live at 866-733-6786. We welcome your calls and please call in now. 866-733-6786 is the number to get in touch with us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Joanne Spetz, who is uh, Associate Director of Research at the UCSF Health Force Center. They provide supports and recommendations to the Health and Human Services Department. And also with us is Dr. Nora Volkov, who is Director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And Dr. Volkov, let me go back to you because uh, the coronavirus threat has actually put a hold on about a billion dollars of research uh, that was supposed to be focused on new forms of addiction treatment. Part of that freeze is on non-COVID research uh, where you are uh, at the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, so I'd, I'd like to talk about uh, what kind of research is being done now and what do you see vis-a-vis -vis the hopes of that research? What's positive about it? Well, it, 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 it really comes at a terrible time because we had an epidemic that was uh, creating already a lot of deaths, which we have had trouble of containing. And last year, already 2019, we're seeing increases in deaths, uh, which are of course going to increase in 2020. So uh, in terms, for example, the clinical trials that we have to address the, the needs of patients that require treatment with an opioid use disorder, those, those programs are on hold because the emergency departments, which for example, is one of the networks that we're using in order to treat patients that end up there with overdoses or that go there for seeking help. They are not accepting to do research on emergency departments. Uh, similarly, our trials that are going into primary care health to also engage them are also placed on hold. The other very large network that we've been able to generate is uh, 
and interactions with, be, with people in the criminal justice system, including jails and parolees, and that to link them with the healthcare system so that we can provide support for those individuals that have an opioid use disorder. And that is extraordinarily important because if you don't do it, this is a particularly vulnerable group for dying from an overdose. All of that is on hold because the, the jails are not allowing researchers, they are closing their doors to protect people inside. So it has been very, very challenging. So we have been forced to actually work, of course, virtually. And there are certain things that you can do virtually, like gather information, and then based on that information, tailor interventions that can be achieved and that, that is good, but the hands-on experiments have been slowed very, very much, particularly the clinical trials. And uh, slowly we're starting to see, because as we come back into opening our society and recognizing that we cannot just be on hold, that we need to figure out a way of doing it. I mean, we have a serious problem. And so let's come up with a strategy. And little by little, we're seeing some of the clinical centers, for example, starting to recruit patients for the trials. And uh, similarly, in our big studies for implementation research in, in states that have been decimated by the overdose deaths, slowly they're starting to implement what are the prevention interventions that they can build up and document that they can help people that basically protect them against overdosing. Overall, though, it is very, very slow at, at a pace that is, of course, very frustrating because, you, again, we don't have time as a luxury. But we are seeing, in fact, based on all of this information that we're gathering, that's where we're seeing the overdoses, but we're also seeing that it has led to a reduction on the number of individuals that are receiving buprenorphine. And this was just mentioned for California. We're seeing it across other, basically, almost all of the United States. So we're going in that respect in the wrong direction because this is one of the most powerful tools that we have to prevent overdoses. Similarly, um, the distribution of naloxone, which is a very effective medication to revert overdoses. You save a person's life by giving them naloxone, provided that you can give the naloxone rapidly when someone overdoses. Well, with the social distancing, the likelihood that someone observes someone overdosing unable to provide them with naloxone is much less so. So that's the other very, very powerful tool that we have had all along. Well, excuse me, Dr. Volkov, don't we need maybe some emergency funding uh, as well as relaxation of barriers uh, where the naloxone is concerned, uh, wider distribution of it and possible and getting rid of the barriers or waivers that exist? And I, I mean, I'm very, I, that's why I commented there are some things that have been done that have made us, uh, allow us at least tools that we can use to try to buffer these challenges. But, but it's not enough. We need to integrate and organize um, basically our actions so we can provide them. And that, that requires not just the academicians or the services, but the community itself to participate. We ne need to learn to basically, and, and you mentioned it, it says we need to learn to multitask. I mean, this is, we cannot keep our eyes off the COVID. But at the no, same that, time, yeah. a group that is very vulnerable is those with substance use disorder, and they themselves on top of that have the vulnerability of overdosing. So we need to figure out how to take care of them under those conditions. And so as an institute that does science, what we've been asking is for researchers to 
to actually ask for funding that can help them address and develop those models and rapidly to turn them around rapidly. We cannot wait for, for one, two, three years to get the, the results. We need to actually move very, very swiftly. Yeah, I'm, I'm struck by what you're saying here with the need for the community involvement, with the need for more research, with the need obviously for more funding. And let me bring a caller on. Mark is joining us. And by the way, you can join us toll free at 866-733-6786. Mark, join us. Hi. Uh, hi. I just wanted to make a uh, quick comment. I heard the speaker uh, talk about the lack of in-person meetings for various support groups like Al-Anon, AA, uh, NA. Um, the flip side of that is that um, if you actually embrace the online presence, um, it can be a great thing. I mean, the ability to get to a meeting anytime, anywhere you want, the variability of being able to attend a meeting anywhere in the world, um, look all your um, co-participants in the face instead of the back of the head, um, has, has actually for some people been a great thing. And um, to the point where every in-person local meeting that I have been to, is figuring out how to continue both in-person and Zoom meetings as they um, as they come out of the full pandemic mode. Yeah, Mark, so, I thank uh, you for that. Uh, let me go back to Joanne Spetz on this. We were talking with you earlier, Joanne, about telemedicine and its role in this. What about Zoom and virtual meetings and so forth? Uh, they're, nece they're necessity now, but how about the efficacy? You know, I don't know that we have a lot of research on the efficacy that um, that I'm sure will be something that um, Dr. Volko will get some applications about over the next um, several months for, for research funding. But um, I think that is a great point. Virtual meetings, virtual consultations work really well for some people. And, um, you know, I think we tend to think of that as being video. But what I'm hearing from clinicians also is that they're finding that simple telephone consultations also have been really beneficial, that they are finding they can elicit a lot of information and that for some of their patients who maybe don't want their clinician to see their house or you know, see inside their bedroom or their living conditions, that even just being able to be on the telephone has been a wonderful and useful low barrier way to improve access Similarly, I've heard clinicians say that um, having virtual visits in the home has been useful because it gives them a better sense as a clinician about what other barriers and environmental things might be going on for that individual in their household. So, the, you know, I think, um, I think what the caller said about organizations wanting to come up with ways to offer in-person and Zoom, you know, I think the more ways we can offer services through the more providers, the more modalities, then the more people who are going to have access and be able to seek out what really works for them. And there's no one size fit all solution. So there's, um, you know, there, there's a lot of room for us to understand what works best, but I think it also is what works best for which populations and in what circumstances, because there won't be a single solution. Question from a listener named Paul, Joanne Spetz, I'll go to you with uh, Paul Wright, similar to the new rules for buprenorphine, uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has also loosened the rules for methadone maintenance programs, allowing up to four weeks of medication to be dispensed at one time. This is allowing patients to shelter at home and reduces exposure for clinic staff. Thoughts? Yeah, um, that is another one where methadone has been historically very tightly controlled because it has a greater potential for abuse in and of itself. And, um, you know, I think we, uh, like it or not, are now in a opportunity to be able to look at 
for which um, patients that take home for extended periods of time has been really safe and effective and where has it been riskier for patients? Um, you know, cause again, there's probably not a one size fits all solution but reducing the barriers to access has been very good. Similarly, I know um, some of my colleagues at UC San Francisco have been actively going to some of the various, um, you know, kind of hotel setups that have been established to try to help people who are homeless get into housing in an emergency basis. And my colleagues have been physically going there and checking in with patients and bringing them their, their medications and so on to the extent possible, which, it, which is, you know, really been um, quite an innovation in terms of getting the care more directly into people's homes, which is, a, you know, for especially a homeless population, going to people where they are is very important. That brings up another question from a listener. I'll go to you, Dr. Volkov. Uh, Nora Volkov, again, is director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Melody writes, uh, I distribute meals to homeless neighbors in Oakland. I see signs of opioid use regularly, swollen hands, for example. I'm wondering what steps are being taken for these most vulnerable community members who may have difficulty accessing health care? Well, that has always been a major challenge all along that we recognize that only a very small fraction of people that could benefit from treatment actually get access to treatment. And in some instances, it's because they actually don't know how to seek that treatment or they are intimidated by the treatment programs or the healthcare system because of the fear of stigma and discrimination. And, and there is a lot of discrimination and stigma, not just for addiction, but even for the treatments of addiction. So they have to overcome all of those issues. And the third element is, of course, resources that can allow these uh, persons that are struggling with drugs to actually go to a place where they can receive treatment and have the capability of sustaining that treatment. So there are challenges that, that need to be very practical in terms of the minimal requirements for someone to be able to get access to those treatments. There are uh, sites and, and SAMHSA actually provides them very comprehensive uh, display of the different places where people can go and seek help. And, um, and now with the, the parity law, many uh, basically, uh, this has made in principle access to, treatment, access to treatment much more widespread than it was in the past. Well, since so much comes down to money often, I wanted to ask you if I could, uh, the, the House, uh, the HEROES Act was passed by Congress uh, and it designated actually $3 billion for mental health and substance abuse uh, disorder programs. Uh, White House and the Republicans have essentially, uh, well, made a DOA dead on, the, on arrival. Uh, is there any possibility that that bill can be moved through to success, pass Mitch McConnell and pass the White House? You're asking me a question that I am not, basically, that's not per se my area of expertise, but I do want to bring forth the concept. I mean, obviously, at the essence, uh, we always discuss how are we going to get this done, but there's another element, too, that we have to keep our eyes on and not just say it's just lack of resources. There is another very uh, challenging issue that has plagued the substance abuse treatment programs, and is that basically um, many of these programs don't actually deliver treatments that are evidence-based. And so there's not a good way of quantifying and determining the quality of this program. So it's not just delivering treatment to people that need it, but delivering evidence quality treatment that is shown to benefit. Because one of the concerns, and this has, you can see it happening, 
is that uh, states, for example, have been given dollars to expand the, the treatment program. You see treatment programs basically surging in different places with no evidence of quality whatsoever. And that can be very harmful. That can be challenging along with so many challenges that we have touched upon in this hour. And I want to extend appreciation to you, Nora Volkov, for being with us this hour. Nora Volkov is director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And thanks to Joanne Spetz, associate director of research at UCSF Health Force Center, which provides supports and recommendations to the Health and Human Services Department. And we'll keep uh, certainly monitoring this concern and hope that there will be some political will to ameliorate it. Thank you all for listening to this hour of Forum and for all of us here at KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.